Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. A couple things have happened over the last couple of weeks. One was that we didn't have a Bible Breakdown last week, and I know that empty void in your lives um, remained unfilled until this day. But you'll also notice, more importantly and seriously, some fun new music. So Nick Hill, the beloved Nick Hill, um, helped me pick out some uh, fun music to put for the intro and the outro, so I'm grateful to him. For anybody who doesn't know, anyone who spends time with Nick Hill is a very lucky person. He is a huge blessing to Solid Rock Church and anyone that comes in contact with him. That's just a side note, but very important. And today, also important, we are going to be diving into Revelation. So we're going to be in Revelation 1. We've got four more weeks in the New Testament um, in our Gospel Project material, and then we're going back to the start. So we've, we've covered most of the New Testament gospel project-wise. Obviously, we skipped over quite a bit. But even looking back, I'm like, we covered a lot. Um, and so it's, it's fun to look back and say, hey, we covered a lot of the New Testament. Um, and we've gotten to see a lot of the, you know, the big stories. We've gotten to see some that, you know, I, I'm grateful that are included in the material because some people just tend to skip over them, but we've gotten a pretty good dose of uh, of the New Testament, and we are going to be finishing with Revelation. So, uh, you, if you listen to the uh, podcast on First John, uh, I think that may have been one a couple weeks ago um, before the break. Um, but we're going to have some similar background here because um, I talked about a little bit about uh, John post uh, resurrection, Jesus post ascension, and what happened to him. So. Uh, I'll rehash that briefly. So John is one of the, I think he is the only of Jesus' uh, 12 disciples that was not martyred. So he actually died uh, of natural causes as far as we know. He was exiled to an island called Patmos, which we will uh, see come up in this as well. And that's where he receives the vision that uh, leads to the book of Revelation. And uh, I also talked about a couple of weeks. It's uh, entirely possible that he actually did return from that exile in Patmos. We don't know for sure that he died. The fact that we have a letter that he said he got the vision from while he was on Patmos ten tends to lead me to believe that he did return. I don't know if exiles are given the um, right to send letters and things and long writings. You know, I don't know. So uh, we know that he spent time on Patmos. Uh, he may have returned to Ephesus, and that may have been where he lived out the rest of his days. Not 100% sure, but seems likely. Uh, either way, we know that John received this vision that led to Revelation while he was on Patmos, and we'll see that here in the text. So as we are going in to Revelation, it's very important that we keep a few things in mind, okay? Revelation is by far the most difficult book of the Bible for us to understand, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, if we were not New Testament believers, if we were, say, people who lived in like 200 BC, we'd have a lot of confusing material to deal with as well, because we know that when Jesus comes, we see all those prophecies fulfilled. And luckily, a lot of the gospel writers help us see how those prophecies are fulfilled. Uh, but you can imagine that if you did not have the benefit of um, some New Testament writers telling you exactly how Jesus was fulfilling these prophecies that it would be difficult, right? So we have the benefit of seeing uh, the whole picture and we see how Jesus fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies. We find ourselves in a similar position to these uh, Old Testament uh, people who called on the name of the Lord in that we have not seen the full end of 
Revelation. So um, there are people who believe that the book of Revelation took place um, in the sacking of the temple of Jerusalem in AD 70. I do not personally hold to that belief. There are some who do. Um, and so, and that kind of leads me into the next point of why it can be difficult to understand Revelation. There are a lot of different interpretations of Revelation, okay? Because we're going to see a lot, a lot, a lot of symbolism. So what does symbolism lend itself to? Well, it lends itself very easily to wide interpretation. So um, what what is going to be my focus and really what I hope will be your focus too as you read through Revelation uh, as we talk about it is that we don't try to just absolutely work out all these symbols to perfection. That we are comfortable uh, letting some of these symbols remain symbols and to allow ourselves to say, I don't fully understand that. Because I think when we come to Revelation and we try to take a really hard stance, really on anything except for a few things that we'll mention, that's when we get in trouble because we are not, um, we we do not know exactly how it all plays out. Really, the book of Revelation should give us a lot of hope. It should um, test our faith in that we have to know that there are some things we're not going to understand. Uh, but ultimately, it's going to be a great joy when we do see these things played out and we see that Jesus is going to return. So uh, something else too, and this is very, another very important thing is every, pretty much every believer from, you know, the time of Paul's writings, we see it explicitly in some of his letters till now has believed that their time was the last time. Okay. So we can be very tempted to have a very um, uh, anachronistic, look at some of these things, perhaps, where um, we look at these things through the lens of our time. And I would caution us against that because of what I said earlier, that we are not the first to wonder, oh, is this going to be the last, you know, the last times? It very well might be. But when we read it through that lens, we eventually start to distort the scripture to what we see around us. And That's not what we want to do. We will know when these things play out. They will not take place in secret. These things will be open to the world. So keep an open mind to those things. And I think we'll have a good time in Revelation. We'll see what's most important. And I'll just go ahead and let you know, here are the most important things. Jesus is going to return in glory and he's going to make all things new. He is going to gather those who are his, his children, those who have believed in his name. We are going to be gathered to Jesus. He will return in glory He will make all things new. That's what we know from Revelation. This is a story about Jesus being revealed. Okay. We'll get, we'll talk about that a little bit in verse one. No, we'll talk about it now. Okay. So verse one of chapter one says the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to stop right there. I know it's a little short. So this is going to get Greek grammar on you. So bear with me, but I think it'll help. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, when you say of something in English, a lot of times it's tied to this genitive case in Greek. Now, the genitive case in Greek is very complex, and it can communicate a lot of different meanings, which makes it both, uh, for a writer, it's a great tool. For a reader, it can be challenging when you don't have the uh, writer right there telling you exactly what they meant. This is one of the few examples in which um, scholars think that this is what we would call a plenary genitive. And so, these are, that means that it, it serves as both an objective and subjective genitive, meaning that Jesus is both the revealer, the subjective genitive. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus Christ is revealing it. 
but then it's also objective in that the revelation is about Jesus Christ. Okay. So it's basically Jesus Christ revealing himself is what we see from the revelation of Jesus Christ, because we're going to see, as it says, it says in verse one, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So we know that Jesus Christ is revealing it. And as we go through the book, we're going to see that Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay. So that is what is most important about uh, about revelation is Jesus Christ is being revealed in his true glory in full form. No more waiting. This is it. This is when he returns. This is when we see him as he is. Uh, this is when we will uh, understandably fall before him. Um, but that because of what he's done for us, we have nothing to fear. When we read revelation, we shouldn't have a great amount of to fear because we are God's children. So um, even if, as we talk about, and I don't know that we'll get into tribulation. I haven't looked ahead enough. But even if, uh, again, multiple opinions on tribulation, the tribulation and what that means, whether we'll be gone for it, we'll endure the whole thing, or we'll somewhere in the middle, regardless of which of those we fall into, we know that we are the children of God. We know that we are secure in Christ Jesus. So even if we were to experience seven years of tribulation, we know at the end of it, we are the children of God. We belong to him forever. So we can read this with... Um, we can read this with a sobriety, but we shouldn't read it with a fear. Okay, so we should we should not be afraid of the things we read in Revelation, but we should it should sober us because it's a reality that we live in a world broken by sin, and that uh, the reality of Jesus' return is that there's going to be difficulty in um, His glory, His goodness, His righteousness interacting with the sinful world. So. Without further ado, let's actually jump into some more of it. So I'm going to start here in verse 3. And the first one, this is a really unique verse. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So I was in need of some extra blessing, so I figured I'll just read a lot of this book. No, I'm just kidding. But we will read a lot of it. Um, but I think that here's the important thing. First, I, I can't think of another scripture that, or another book or section of scripture that really gets this um, distinction. So it's unique in that. Um, and so we're like, okay, if this isn't a book we should just uh, always avoid because it's confusing. Okay. It's blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, but hear what it says who reads aloud. And I'm not saying you have to read it out loud for it to be valuable, but it's not about blessed is the one who correctly interprets all the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who predicts all these things correctly. Like it's a blessing for us to read and to hear like these things. And so when I read that, I'm saying, okay, pressure's off. I don't have to get all of this exactly right. I don't have to know exactly what's going on because it's a blessing just to hear the words of this prophecy, to speak out loud the words of this prophecy. So that gives us hope too, even when we get confused. There's a ble there's blessing in, uh, there's joy and there's happiness in reading these words aloud. And I think that happiness comes from what we're going to, the things that are going to come up regularly, which is. Jesus is going to take care of things. We belong to him. So uh, getting a little bit more into the meat here, I'll start in verse five and read through verse eight. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. 
Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, so when we're reading Revelation, everything kind of goes to this through this lens. Um, A, Jesus has freed us. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has made us a kingdom. He has made us priests to his God and Father. Okay, so um, even back in the uh, in the first giving of the law, God's desire was for the people of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. So basically, a, a kingdom of people who were uh, mediators between God and man. So ultimately, Jesus is our high priest. He has ultimately made, been made the ultimate mediator. But you think about the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. It was kind of a go-between between, between um, the people and God. He wanted his whole, the whole nation of Israel to be priests, to reveal uh, to one another, to those who didn't know him, uh, who God was. And so for those of us who have believed in Jesus, we are that kingdom. We are those priests. and um, We're priests to the Lord, and we are priests to those around us, to one another, and to those who don't know him. So we're unique. So we need to read this book knowing that, uh, we've been freed, and that makes us unique. God has a unique role for us in eternity. There's uh, just boundless grace that has been given to us, and that proceeds into eternity. And then, again, ultimately, Jesus is coming, and all will see. He's going to return. He Everybody's going to see him. It says, even those who pierced him, that means, well, of course, the Christians are going to see him, but even those who are against him will see him. All the tribes of the earth Everyone is going to see him. Everyone is going to know that he is God, that he is the firstborn from the dead, that he is the ruler of kings on earth, as it says. So we we can read Revelation through. Okay, I know this. God has something special and unique played out to play for me. I'm part of his kingdom. I am one of his priests. Everyone will see Jesus. It will be to the glory of the Godhead that all of these things will take place. So if we if we can read everything through that lens, we may not understand everything, but we're going to get pretty far because we're going to say, okay, even if I don't know exactly what's going to happen, this is going to result in the revelation of Jesus to the glory of the Godhead, and I have a special part to play in this. Okay, so that's how we're going to look through it. So moving down now into verse 9, John kind of gives a little intro um, to what this letter is and why he has written it. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos in an, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Theatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Okay, so that's what is going down. He's chilling on Patmos. He's there. He says, on the count of the word of God and testament of Jesus. He's referring to his exile. Um, What he means by I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, it sounds like he kind of went into some sort of trance, um, some sort of visionary state, perhaps. And I think what um, we're going to see easily explains all of that in that Um, It's kind of bizarre stuff that he's going to see. I don't think you'd just see that if you were just eyes wide open, normal, lucid life. So, um, but he hears this voice Um, in the ESV. They've got this in red letter. So they are making the interpretive choice that this is Jesus voice. I think it's a pretty solid choice, but he's saying, I'm going to show you some stuff. 
and you write it to these seven churches. So some of them you probably heard of. Uh, Ephesus, of course, the book of Ephesians goes there. Um, we see some of these other ones pop up in Paul's missionary journey. Um, I, I specifically remember Sardis. Um, I'm not sure about Smyrna, Pergamum, and Theatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I'm not 100% sure. But these are, just so you know, real churches. And like I said, you've heard of some of them. Uh, Philadelphia, of course, the one in Pennsylvania, home to the Eagles, the Phillies, the Flyers, if you're into hockey. I'm just cool. Of course, I'm kidding. City of Brotherly Love, those what that means. So these are these are real life churches that he wrote to that we can presume these letters made it that way. That's who they were addressed to. And um, there's going to be some specific uh, call outs to these churches um, in to varying degrees. We'll talk about that next week. That one, man, that, next week is really going to make your skin crawl um, in terms of like, whoops, oh, this sounds a lot like me and my American Christian life and friends and ugh, it's gonna it's gonna be tough but it's gonna be important it's gonna be good but he's writing to these churches um and the hope again that the church will be encouraged that they will know that we've been freed from our sins by his blood made a kingdom priest to god and that glory and dominion forever will go to the godhead that jesus is coming on the clouds so that's who he's writing to um and then we get a description of John seeing Jesus in his glory in 12 through 16. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So I, I don't know about y'all. Reading that gives me chills a little bit. It's just a just an incredibly glorious picture we can imagine that this is John seeing Jesus in his full glory. Okay. This is not Jesus who is living his life on earth as fully man, fully God in the incarnation. This is the fully God Jesus. Okay. This is him in his glory. Um, I don't know if any of you thought about it. I definitely did when it says clothed with a long robe and then white, uh, the hairs of his head were white. I was like, Oh, maybe that's where everybody gets that like old man in the white robe thing. You know, I never really thought about it. Um, but that's how he sees him. Um, this important, 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 important thing in verse 12, oh no, I'm sorry, 13, when he says one like a son of man, this is a theme throughout scripture um, that is often misidentified. So um, this is a cross reference to uh, Daniel 7:14, in which, and 13 and 14, in which there is this prophecy of the coming of the son of man. He it says, I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds. And then Jesus would often refer to himself as the son of man. So he wasn't just like revealing that he was um, fully human in that, but it was also a reference to this Daniel 7 passage. And now we see here like, okay, it's Daniel 7 a little bit when Jesus comes the first time. It's Daniel 7 a lot whenever he comes the second time. All right. So when he says, I saw one like a son of man, we should be thinking like, okay, this is the, this is the same thing that Jesus called himself. This is the same thing that Daniel said about the coming Messiah. Uh, very important phrase in the scripture. Um, so what we also see um, is just this, just, yeah, this is glorious picture of who Jesus is, his face, like the sun shining in full strength. That 
is just like a picture of glory. Um, from his mouth came a two-edged sword. Um, this is interesting. And again, this is me getting into, well, let's take a stab at some of the symbolism. This is not me coming down hard. Like this is absolutely what it means. But remember in Hebrews, the scripture is described um, like a sharp two-edged sword. Jesus, the word of God, by him, all things were created. There's kind of, there's this thing between this two-edged sword, between the word, Jesus being the word, true words, all these kind of things. So there's some symbolism there too, um, as well. Again, not landing hard on that, just something that stuck out to me, like that reminds me of other places in scripture. Um, so John is seeing this Jesus in his full glory. And as you can imagine, he wasn't fully prepared for it. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So that's what happens when we, when people encounter the glory of God. It is not, and we see that in the Old Testament. Um, we they're not as lucky as John to have Jesus there to lay their right hand on him. But uh, people, humanity, our sinfulness, we are not equipped to handle the full glory of God. Okay, we do not. Uh, we are not able to be in the presence of the full glory of God without. A reaction of this nature. But again, let's look at the second half of 17, and then we'll read through the rest of this chapter. It says, it says, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So unlike uh, most people who encounter the glory of God who die and they stay dead, this is, I think, just a, a wonderful picture of what it means for John to be in Christ. He laid his hand on me. Fear not. I have the keys of death and Hades. I am alive forevermore. That's our hope as believers, is that even in the presence of the full glory of God, that we are declared alive. We're declared alive because of what Jesus has done. So John has that experience. Uh, and then, of course, we see that, like I said, he has the keys of death and Hades in his hand. We see that we are counted amongst the living ones, that we are alive in him and that he commands him to tell the church about these things. He ex Jesus explains, see, there's some symbolism that we don't have to worry about. Jesus explained it all for us. He's like, these seven stars represent, you know, the seven angels of the churches. Now, what does that mean? That's a different question, not for today. Um, and then the seven lampstands represent those seven churches that John's going to be writing to. So that's just chapter one. That I hope that if you, you've listened to this one and you listen to future ones, uh, the next three that we've got on Revelation, that this background can be helpful for you as we continue to go forward. Um, but even as we seek to apply um, this this first chapter, um, which just really gets the ball rolling, ultimately what I want us to know is that in the end, we can be confident of one thing, and it's that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. As far as humans are concerned, Jesus took a lot of losses on earth. Of course, we all know that was part of his plan that he did so willingly. On earth, you already know this, but I'll just reassure you in case you weren't sure, we're going to take a lot of losses on earth as people who follow Jesus. There are a lot of difficulties that will face us because we believe in Jesus. There are 
so many times will we will feel like we're on the wrong side of the battle. But what we see in this beginning, what we'll see throughout this book is that in the end, Jesus wins. And if we are with him, if we believe in him, we win as well. We get to be with him as he conquers, we conquers. As he lives, we live. As he is resurrected, we are resurrected. So when we're in this world and we're struck between the, you know, this is an opportunity for me to win one. This is an opportunity for me to win one. Um, it's that promotion. It's that spot in line, you know, anywhere in between. And we can think this is finally my chance to win one. Well, if it's contrasting to the things of God, then ultimately that's not going to count as a win in the book. For us, just like Paul says in Philippians, that all the things of this world, he started to count as loss for the glory of knowing Christ. So we don't, we don't need to have a bunch of wins in this world. We can accept the losses because if they're coming at the, uh, at the, because of obedience to Jesus, then ultimately that's just a, that's just a win that we're saving for later. That is a uh, win that we may not see right now, but we'll see it eventually. And to, to lose this world and to gain Christ is exactly what the Christian life is about to let go of the things we have in this world to not consider them precious, but instead to consider him precious. As we look at Revelation, we see that when we make him the most precious, he is given the glory that he is due. And so we see in Revelation that this he's going to be revealed in his glory. We can have a, a part in leading people to know his glory beforehand, but we know that what the outcome is. We don't have to be concerned about what the outcome is. If we're in Christ's we will live with him. We will reign with him. And so even as the things of this earth pass away, we have a great hope in the coming of Jesus.